when we when we set up Grace Church, so Grace Church set up um, just over eight years ago. And when when we set it up, we had a we had a, one of the things, one of the two things we were most committed to was to being a church where you would open up the Bible, you would read it and you would teach from it in a way that was relevant to the people of Hartlepool every week. That was that was one of the things we wanted to be. Uh, and you can you can be the judge at how well we've achieved that or not. Um, but that was our ambition. We wanted uh, we wanted nothing more than to come together during the week open the Bible and teach from it because, crucially, we believe in the transformative power of the Bible. That's why we do it. We believe the Bible changes people. We believe that as we see Jesus, as we see the things that he did, as we hear the words that he spoke, that we are transformed just as the entire world was transformed 2,000 years ago when he came and taught and spoke and ultimately went to the cross for us. If you think about all that has happened in the world since that moment, all the change that that has brought about across this planet, we believe that as we encounter Jesus, we too are going to be transformed, that we are going to be changed by that. We are going to come to know him, to see him, to love him, to be one of his people. That's that's what we believe. And so all I want to do here for the next 30 minutes is I just want to look at the person of Jesus as we've seen in these encounters that he has with the Pharisees. You see, we're in in this series looking through the beginning of Mark's gospel together. Um, And what we've seen so far in chapter two is we've seen this kind of growing hostility towards Jesus. You see, when Jesus was on earth, everyone wasn't just like, oh, Jesus, he's so great. In fact, lots of people were hostile to him. In fact, they were so hostile to him that in the end, they're going to kill him. Like that's that's a significant level of hostility. And we see it building up here in this chapter. You see, we've seen these disputes between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on one hand, these respectable religious leaders. We we need to get that in our head when we hear those words, Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were the upstanding, respected members of society and Jesus on the other hand. And what we see is this growing conflict between these two groups. And what we've seen in chapter two so far is it starts with them questioning who Jesus thinks he is. So we saw that at the beginning of chapter two. Uh, Jesus declares that this man's sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law go, go, who does Jesus think he is? They think Jesus has delusions of grandeur. That he's claiming the authority to forgive sins that only God can do. So, So they start to be upset with Jesus. Jesus is claiming things that no human being should claim. Then, what we were looking at last week was they start to be critical of the company Jesus keeps. So they look at Jesus and they look at the people he's hanging around with and they say he's hanging around with tax collectors, with sinners, with bad people. If you can judge a person by the company they keep, then their judgment on Jesus is not very favourable. He keeps bad company. He keeps company with bad people. He eats with them. He spends time with them. And he doesn't spend time with the respectable people of society. So that's what we're looking at last week. And this week, we're going to see that the Pharisees' um, opposition to Jesus is going to escalate to such a point that by verse 6 of chapter 3, you'll see this. What's happening? They are going out, beginning to plot how they might kill him. 
That's how it progresses. So you can see this kind of progression that goes on here. It starts with them questioning and disbelieving Jesus' words. And then they progress to dismissing his people. His people aren't very impressive. They're not the right kind of people. And then this week, it progresses on to criticism of Jesus, of his practices, of the things that he does. They're going to accuse him and his followers of being immoral lawbreakers. To such a point that by the end of it, they're like, we want nothing to do with him. In fact, it would be better if we killed him. This is, this is how the story progresses over this chapter. Now, this week, their accusations are going to revolve around two specific areas. And I just want to just briefly just explain a little bit about what they, those two are, just to make sure we're kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. So the first area that it's going to revolve around is the area of fasting. Now, now fasting was the act whereby people would go without food for a period of time as part of their worship towards God. It it was often linked to times of repentance, times of grief or sorrow, and it was normally accompanied by periods of more concentrated prayer. This is what fasting was. You go without food as a sign often of sorrow or grief or repentance, and during that time, you spend more of your time praying. Now, fasting had been part of the Jewish faith throughout their history. For thousands of years, fasting had been a part of the Jewish faith. And some people come to Jesus. This is the bit, verse 18 down to 22 or something. They come to Jesus and they say, look, we look at the Pharisees and their disciples and their fasting. And we look at John and his disciples and their fasting. And we look at you and your disciples and you're not fasting. What? do you think makes you so special? Why do your followers not fast like everyone else's followers are fasting? That's the first area of controversy, fasting. All these other people are fasting, but Jesus and his disciples aren't. The second area of controversy here is the Sabbath. That's what we're going to see from verse 23 down to 3 verse 6. It all revolves around the Sabbath. Now, the command to keep the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. You know, it was foundational to the Jewish law. It was one of, one of those laws that had been a part of Jewish religion throughout their history. And there were two key elements to the Sabbath. The first was, Michelle was talking about this earlier, it was to be a day of rest, to reflect that creation narrative where God creates the world in six days and on the seventh day he rests. That was a, a kind of pattern that he then laid down for us to follow. So that was the first thing it was meant to be. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest. The second was it was meant to be a day of specific, uh, a day that was specifically devoted to God. It was designed to be a day free from work so that we could rest and worship the God who made us. That's why Michelle's questions earlier, when we're thinking about how we use our Sabbath, is it rest and is it, and is it worship, are really great questions. Because that was the purpose of the Sabbath. It was to be restful and it was to be a day holy to God. And in the next, these two stories that we see of Jesus and the Pharisees, the Pharisees are going to spot two things that concerns them about the way Jesus approaches the Sabbath. The first thing they see is that Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields and they're picking ears of corn and they're eating them, which as far as they're concerned is working. Now, now that might not sound like a big deal for us, but for the Pharisees, this is harvesting. After all, the act of harvesting is simply picking ears of corn. Like that's what it is. And so the scale to them doesn't matter. Yes, it's not mass harvesting, but it is still harvesting. 
Uh, so that's the first thing that concerns them. These, these Jesus and his disciples, on the Sabbath, the day of rest, they are, they are harvesting. They're taking the, the seed from the corn and they're eating it. And, and the second thing that concerns them is in the synagogue. So on the synagogue, they see a, a man there. This man has a shriveled hand and Jesus heals that man. And again, as far as they are concerned, healing is working. After all, if Jesus can go around healing people on the Sabbath, then why can't doctors? You see, this is, these are the two areas of controversy that uh, we're seeing here. Fasting and Sabbath. These two things have been part of the Jewish religion for thousands of years. And they look at Jesus and his followers and they say, you're not, you're not obeying these laws like we are. And what these encounters launch us headlong into is, in my opinion, one of the key issues surrounding Christianity. And that is the issue of what role, if any, do laws play in Christianity? It launches us straight into that debate. Because this is the debate we have been played out right before us in these passages. On one side of the argument, we have the Pharisees who are all about laws. They think laws are important and laws should be kept. That's the kind of, if there's one thing that, uh, that kind of symbolizes the Pharisees, it's that, isn't it? We believe in laws and we believe that they should be kept. That, that could be their motto. Everywhere they go, this is what they're talking about. We believe in laws, we believe that the laws are there to be kept. That's one side of the debate. And on the other side of the debate, we have Jesus and his disciples who are accused of being lax when it comes to the law. That's the charge that the Pharisees are making. They're saying, you are, you are not committed to keeping these laws. These laws that have been part of our history, that have been part of our religion for thousands of years, you're not committed to keeping them like we are. And so all eyes turn to Jesus to be, how are you going to answer the charge? This is the accusation that's being made against you. You're lawbreakers. You don't care about laws. You're not obeying the laws that we're meant to. And how Jesus answers this is going to be incredibly revealing because it will begin to answer the question, what kind of religion, what kind of movement, what kind of kingdom has Jesus come to bring in? That it's going to start answering that question, how he answers this. Because for many people in the world, both then and now, it is surprising to see Jesus being cast as the anti-law representative in this debate. That's not the Jesus we think of. There's a whole host of people, maybe some of us in this room, who think Jesus was all about laws, wasn't he? Jesus was all about establishing laws and standards and morality and the right way of living, and that we need to keep that. That's what Christianity is, isn't it? It's a collection of laws and we follow them. Christianity is a set of laws and where if we keep them, God accepts us. And if we don't, then he won't. If we go to church, if we give money to charity, if we treat people well, if we don't do anything too bad, if we live a generally respectable life, then we'll be okay. But if we don't, then we won't because Christianity is fundamentally about laws. That's what people think. But Jesus is the other side of this debate. That's the Pharisees and tax collectors. That's not the tax collectors, the Pharisees and chief priests. That's where they sit in this. Jesus is the other side. That might be many people's view of what Christianity is. And yet, when we see Jesus, it's nearly always those around him who are banging on about the laws and the rules, whilst his priorities seem to be firmly elsewhere. So, so before we just move on from that to think about uh, these specific incidences, I just want you to allow this passage, 
or at least to consider whether you need to allow this passage to reshape your view of Jesus. It strikes me that many of us have a view of Jesus that has been built up over many years by a whole host of factors, some of which have no relation to the Jesus we actually read about in his biographies. They're built around kind of ideas, feelings, pictures we've seen of Jesus, things we read in kids' Bibles when we were kids. We have all these views of what Jesus is like. But just look at what Jesus is saying here. Look at what he's doing. Maybe your view of Christianity is that it's loads of laws which you should keep, but you don't really want to. And so you've never really been committed to following Jesus. Maybe you're sat here and going, I I could follow Jesus, but I just don't want to follow all those laws. You're always worried that Jesus is going to ruin your life if you really followed him. Always looking for loopholes or ways to avoid doing what he says. You need to remember, Jesus is not primarily about laws. He's much more concerned about you knowing him and about your heart than he is about laws. Maybe, maybe that's not quite right for you. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking about giving your life to Jesus, following himself, him for yourself. Maybe you've been thinking about that for some time, but you've always been keeping putting it off. And maybe you've been putting it off because you think you have to get your life in order first. Or once I've got my life together, once I'm a bit more sorted, once I've sorted out this area of my life, or once I've dealt with this sin in my life, then I can follow Jesus. First, I defeat my sin. First, I sort out my lifestyle issues. First, I fix that relationship. And then I can come and follow Jesus. You need to remember that Jesus is not the one obsessed with your law keeping. You are. That's your hang-up, not his. Don't let that stop you coming to him. Maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone sorry, today and you've been a Christian for, for many years. But over time, your Christian experience has become almost entirely dominated by your law-keeping. You feel good when you're keeping the laws. You feel bad when you're not. And maybe you've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is much more about forgiveness for people who don't keep the law than he is about jumping on us every time that we fail. Maybe you need to realign your Christian life to make it less about the laws you've kept or failed to keep and more about the person of Jesus and all that he's done for you. Jesus is on the surprising side of this argument He's constantly cast as the opponent of those who are obsessed with law-keeping. Constantly, again and again in the the, uh, Gospels, that's what we're going to see. We've got these people who are obsessed with, do you keep the laws? Do you live the right kind of life on the one hand? And Jesus is the other side of the argument. He's never on their side. He's their opponent. In fact, the Pharisees' concern over laws is one of the things that Jesus is most critical of the Pharisees about. He accuses them of, in essence, manufacturing more and more laws which simply burden people down without offering them anything to help them. That's what he accuses them of. He says, all you do is you burden people down with more and more laws. You're not actually interested in helping people. Which leads us to the question then, well, what's Jesus' approach to the law then? If he's not where the Pharisees are, then where is he? And we're going to see it laid out for us pretty clearly in this section. And it begins with this this kind of fundamental principle. To understand laws, you have to understand the point of the laws. 
to obey laws in such a way that you actually end up working against the purpose for which the law was created is clearly somewhat perverse. Laws were given for a reason. We need to understand that, and then we can apply the law appropriately. Let me uh, uh, let me see if I can have a go at illustrating this. For the first time um, in many, many years this year, I made a New Year's resolution. I've talked about it a few times, because, you know, I can't think as I've made it, I might as well get some credit for having made it, so I'm going to mention it as often as I can. Um, I, I made a New Year's resolution. It was, it was not particularly impressive. Um, it was to simply to read at least some of a book other than the Bible every day uh, of this year. That was my New Year's resolution. And it was going really well until the 16th of January. <laughs> um, it, it was going really well until Tuesday, the 16th of January. Here Now, Tuesday, the 16th of, of January was a traumatic day in our household because we were due to be skiing on the Saturday. And on that evening, we found out that Lewis's passport wasn't valid, um, which is a bit of a problem when you're planning on getting on a plane on Saturday and it's currently Tuesday. And the quickest they can get a passport turned around for a child is a week. So we were looking at this thinking, OK, what do we do? Um, like Lewis is quite independent. Maybe it'd be fine. But we probably should take him with us. Um, and so, how, how can we make this a reality? Uh, and so, so on this, uh, and so we'd we'd had a stressful evening. I'd been to the post office. I'd got the forms. We'd booked an appointment with Durham Passport Office on the Wednesday morning. I was going to go there in the morning. But it was one of those times where you were going to bed thinking there is no way we are going to get that much sleep tonight. Like that's just not a thing that's going to happen. Uh, and Sarah, particularly, I was fairly stressed. Sarah was like different level of stress. Um, and and so, so I went to bed and what I had been doing until that night was when I went to bed, I'd been lying in bed and reading some of my book. But I went, I was in bed this time and Sarah came into bed and just turned the light off straight away. I was like, oh, what do I do? It's the 16th of January. I've been going so well. Every day I've read some of my book. I don't feel like I can turn the light back on on this evening to read some of my book. Like, that's probably not going to go down very well. It's like, do I leave the room? Do I go out, go to a different room? Do I read five words so I can tick it off the tick list? Like, what do I do to not lose my streak? I've done, I've done half a month. Like, that's, that's probably longer than I've done any other resolution. I, I don't want to lose it. The reality was I just had to accept it goes today. <laughs> like, today is the day I don't manage to, to keep my resolution. Now, I could have said... I haven't read today and I don't want to lose my streak. But that was not the moment to make that decision. Sarah was already stressed and unlikely to sleep well, and so further disruption was not a good plan. This is the point where I need to recognize that the point of the resolution was to encourage me to read more and a wider range of things, and that I was actually doing that regardless of whether I read on that particular night or not. I had to recognize that my resolution to do it every day was because I, I knew and I had found through experience that other things kept getting in the way. I kept allowing other things that I viewed as less important than that, preventing me from doing that. So that's why I made the resolution. I knew it was easy for reading to get squeezed out by less valuable things. Therefore, the resolution was a good one. I don't think it was a bad resolution, but a slavish obedience to it, which ignored the people around me and all other factors was not sensible. It seems to me that something like that principle is what Jesus seems to apply here. Like you, can, you can talk about this in life groups, you can talk about this in your life outside, but it seems like to me that that is the heart of Jesus' response to the Pharisees in this section. He, he, he says, actually, obedience to these laws is much more about what the laws were for than it is about making sure you absolutely do it. So let, let, me, let me try and explain through the three examples he gives. The first 
uh, area he applies this to is fasting. He says, of course, there's a time for fasting. He says in verse 20, on that day they will fast. There is a time for fasting. It's not that the idea of fasting is wrong, but what he is saying is there is a context in which it is inappropriate. And the example he gives is of a wedding. Imagine you have decided you're going to fast every Friday. That's what you're going to do. I'm going to fast every Friday. But then one of your friends invites him to his wedding on a Friday. Now, it might be tempting to say, I'll come, but I just won't eat because I, I fast on a Friday. But that would actually be antisocial and joy-sapping. That wouldn't help people enjoy the wedding. That would, be a, that would be an inappropriate thing to do at someone's wedding. When they are trying to celebrate for you to sit there in a corner, refusing to eat and drink, that would not be the right thing to do, even if you had decided that you were going to fast every, uh, every Friday. That's the example he gives of the bridegroom. It's not a loving thing to do to refuse to join in the celebration of your friend's marriage because of an inflexible commitment to a law. No, weddings are a time of celebration, not fasting. That's, that's his first example. He then makes similar points regarding the Sabbath. So when he's questioned about harvesting on the Sabbath, he doesn't say, don't be so stupid, I was just picking some corns of, of wheat off the top. It's not really harvesting, which is what I've been tempted to say. He doesn't say that because he actually wants to use this as a teaching opportunity. What he does is he refers them back to a story when King David was hungry and in need and ate bread, which was only meant for the priests. Jesus' point is that the law is good. The law was good. It was a good law. It showed God's holiness and it provided for the priests to make sure that they had enough to eat. It was a good law, but a blanket application of it with no consideration of the specific circumstances is not good. What should David have done in that situation? Refuse to eat the bread and die because of the law? That wouldn't be a sensible application of that law. That's not the same thing as saying the law doesn't matter or the law isn't good. It's just saying you need to think about this. What was the point of the law and therefore how do we live it out? And then we see it uh, applied again. In fact, fact, this is perhaps the, well, the end of that section is probably the bit where he talks about it most clearly. It, the man with the shriveled hands we move into the synagogue. He sees this man with a shriveled hand. He asks him which is lawful, uh, to do good or evil on the Sabbath. No one answers, so he heals him. And his point is clear. His point is, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, it's clearly meant for people's goods. So if laws are preventing you from acting in a way that does people good, then something's gone wrong with your application of the law. He goes, he goes back to the says, well, what was the purpose of the Sabbath? Why was it given? And in these three examples, we see three common criticisms of the Pharisees' application of the law, three things that Jesus will accuse them of over and over again. The first criticism he has of them is that it's unfeeling. They apply the law without any thought of how those laws would impact the people around them how they would impact the bridegroom or this man with a shriveled hand. The Pharisees are more concerned by law-keeping than they are by the good of people around them. And when you've got to that point, something's gone wrong. Secondly, it ignores the point of the law. So if the first criticism of the Pharisees' application of the law is that it's unfeeling, the second is that they're applying it in a way that ignores the purpose of the law. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. His point being that the laws around the Sabbath were meant to be for your good, not for your harm. The laws were made to force you to rest because otherwise we would force ourselves to work or other people would force us to work. The law was there for our good and our protection. 
They were designed to mean that people with, they weren't designed to mean that people with shriveled hands couldn't be healed or that people starved. That wouldn't be a sensible application of the law. Thirdly, and this is perhaps the most unique thing Jesus says about this, the third criticism that Jesus is going to give the Pharisees about this is it fails to recognize that Jesus has the authority to rewrite the law book. That's what he means when he says he's law of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. It's actually also what the bit about the old wineskin and the new wineskins is all about. It's Jesus saying, you keep banging on about these old rules, but you fail to recognize that I've come to do something completely new and completely different. When he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, it's him saying, you can't tell me what is appropriate to do or not to do on a Sabbath, because ultimately I'm the one who makes the rules in the first place. You see, this is the big question that this passage forces every one of us in this room to wrestle with. Which side of this debate do you fall on? Some of you might have been sitting there feeling a bit uncomfortable as I've talked about this. As if laws and morality don't work. Some of you might be like wrestling in your head like, well, how do we understand laws and what we're meant to keep and what we're not meant to keep? How do we understand morality in this? But as we end this kind of this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, you have to ask the question, which which camp would I have gone in? If I'd been stood there, who would I have been cheering for? And the reason you have to ask that question, I'm going to be as blunt as I can, is because churches tend to attract Pharisees. They're the people who tend to find their way into churches. This is why we constantly want to put Jesus on the other side of the debate. We want to make Jesus the one who's obsessed with laws. We want to move him to our side. You see, we might all sit here wanting to answer, oh, I'm definitely on team Jesus. But here's the test. Where does your religion lead you? What kind of person has it made you? What kind of life does your religion lead you to live? Because you look at the Pharisees' religion and you can see the kind of people it turned them into. It made them judgmental. They were constantly acting as judges, condemning other people for their failure to keep the laws. Constantly looking at people and judging them for their behavior, just like they are Jesus and his followers here. It made them judgmental. It made them critical. Their religion made them critical. They were constantly criticizing people, criticizing their lives, their backgrounds, their dress sense, their respectability, their sense of propriety, if I can say the word. Uh, They were constantly criticizing Their religion made them angry. They're furious at the things Jesus says and the things that he does. And they're so angry that in the end it makes them murderous. Their religion makes them judgmental, it makes them critical, it makes them angry, it makes them uncaring. They don't show compassion or understanding for others, but they're rather consumed by laws. Their religion makes them inflexible, blanket insistent on their specific applications of the law without any consideration of the actual situation. Their religion made them proud, obsessed by their own self-importance, obsessed by how they kept the laws when others didn't, and how much better that made them than everyone else. Judgmental, critical, angry, uncaring, inflexible, proud. This describes a lot of people in a lot of churches. This would be, if you were to ask people on the street i reckon this would be one of the chief criticisms of christians and of the church that it's full of people who are judgmental and critical and uncaring and inflexible and proud 
This is the kind of Christianity that I hear about being played out again and again on social media. It's a Christianity that is angry and judgmental and critical and inflexible and proud. But it's much closer to, I don't know, Pharisianity, is that a word? Um, It's much closer to that than it is to Christianity. Jesus' religion is nothing like this. In James, we're told, so James is one of the letters in the New Testament, in James, the beginning of James, we're told this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, that's religion that actually follows Jesus' example. Jesus' example of caring for widows and orphans and people with shriveled hands, rather than condemning them, judging them, weighing them down with more and more laws. That is actually religion that's unpolluted by the world. We tend to think that being unpolluted by the world means setting ourselves some like laws. You know, that's what being unpolluted by the world means. I have these laws where I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing. I'm not going to drink and smoke and swear or whatever. That's what, that's what being unpolluted by the world is. It's making laws that I'm not, I'm not going to do this now. I'm going to do this. I just want to say, there's nothing more worldly than making a whole load of laws. It's like the world's been doing that throughout its entire history. If you want a worldly religion, make a religion that's full of laws, things that you do and don't do. If you want to avoid being polluted by the world, then we need to make following Jesus much more important than the laws we establish. When we tend to think that worldliness is actually law-breaking, we need to see that when we think like that, we become people who are obsessed by whether other people keep the laws that we've established or not. And that makes us people who are quick to judge, quick to criticize, quick to condemn others because they don't live the same kind of lives they do. If you want to have a religion, if you want to live out a faith that God accepts, which is what James says, then you need to love other people. And you need to run away from the kind of obsession with law keeping, which makes us angry, critical, unfeeling and proud. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up here. I just wanna I just wanna say, as far as I'm concerned, our existence as a Christian church depends on our ability to do this. If we can't do that, we will become a church like so many other churches that just bangs on about laws, a church that is all about morality and works and not at all about Jesus and grace and forgiveness. And we will cease to be a church that is Christian in anything but name. Uh, The entire gospel relies on our ability to do this, to not become defined by our law keeping, but instead to become defined by the person of Jesus, who himself is the one who came to rescue and heal us. Uh, And more than that, your joy in the gospel depends on your ability to do this. For as long as you make your Christianity about law keeping, you will either find the misery of pride or the misery of failure. There are only two things that you'll find. Two different versions of the same misery. If you want to find joy in the gospel, you need to remind yourself that Jesus is not the one who's obsessed by your law keeping. Rather, he's the one who came, as we were looking at last week, to save and rescue sinners. Let me pray for us as we finish.